And Lord, we uh, just thank you for, for your, your grace to us, Lord. We thank you uh, for everything you've done, for saving us, for making us right with you. Um, but God, we thank you that you don't just act on our behalf in a moment of time and then just kind of uh, just leave the rest up to us to figure out. We thank you that you also see us through it that you shape us to the image of Christ from one degree of glory to the next in, in ways that we, uh, that we can see clearly and ways that we can't see at all. Through your word, through the encouragement of other people, and even, Lord, as we're going to talk about this morning, through the struggle and the pain that life often brings. And so as we prepare to hear from you this morning, help us to, to see the world the way that you do. As a result, help us to trust you more, God. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see everybody. Thank you, Nate, for leading us. Uh, we're continuing on uh, in, our, in our series through Romans. Um, so turn with me, if you would, to Romans 8. We'll be finishing up Romans 8 this morning, looking at verses 31 to 39. Romans 8, 31 to 39. Paul writes, starting in verse 31, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, has been raised. He's also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Uh, Martin Luther, in his uh, Heidelberg Disputation in, in 1518, he, uh, he presented, a, it was a series of uh, theological statements, and they all kind of built into this one climactic argument that he makes. He says, uh, that person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God, talking about uh, his, his purpose, his character, his will, things of that nature, as though they were clearly perceptible in the things which have actually happened. He deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. What he's saying here is that you can't, you can't always see the invisible things of God through the things that have actually happened. You have to see the things that are actually happening first through the lens of the cross, and only then will you be able to see God rightly in them. The reason that I raise these specific statements in particular is because the dominant subject of our text this morning and the specific thing that we need to be able to see clearly this morning is suffering. The looming question of our time this morning, Paul's looming question over Romans 8, is how does one, Romans 1-7 through 7 square with my suffering? How does justification by faith square with my suffering? How does the free gift of the gospel square with my suffering? How does Jesus paid it all square with my suffering? How does my eternal security square with my suffering? If all of those things are true, if God has saved me from my sin and my debt has been paid, then why am I still suffering? Why does my life look and feel not like God's overwhelming grace and favor is actually upon me, but rather like it's His heavy hand of judgment and wrath that's upon me. Now hear me, hear me in this. I don't know about all of you in the room this morning, but dare I say oftentimes, <laughs> our suffering in this life causes us 
not to rejoice in our struggle as Paul does, but rather to question God's love for us and even doubt that his salvific work in our lives is really taking place. We experience suffering. And what we try to do is we try to, we try to look through our suffering because what we assume is that God cannot be found in our suffering, and so he must be somewhere behind it or around it. And the reason that we get this wrong so easily is that, as, as Luther points out strongly, when we try to answer how God's love towards us and everything that he offers us in salvation squares with my present reality of suffering in this life, we spend too much time looking at our circumstances and then using that as a barometer or maybe as a litmus test for whether or not God really loves us. Or maybe just how much He loves us. And we forget to look in the places that God has chosen to manifestly reveal Himself in His Word and on the cross. Our goal this morning then, it's going to be uh, a simple yet profound one, which is to reorient the way in which we think about our suffering in the Christian life. Our goal this morning is to be people who, who look at our lives and who look at the world, not through our own fleshly point of view, but through the perspective that God gives us through His Word and the testimony of what Christ did on the cross. And in so doing, we want to be people who see the pain and the suffering that's real in this life, not as evidence of, of the absence of God, but as the very means by which God brings blessing in a way by which He prepares us for the glory to come. Our main idea that we're going to kind of uh, talk about and attempt to see in the text this morning is this. It's that our suffering is not a bad thing that keeps us from the love of God. It's a good thing that He uses to prepare us for glory. Let me just say that again. Our suffering is not a bad thing that keeps us from the love of God. It's a good thing that the Lord uses to prepare us for glory. We'll talk about this by looking at, at two questions. First, what is the problem with my pain? And second, how does the gospel make sense of it? And so first, what is the problem with my pain? This is a question that, uh, that everybody has to answer, believer or unbeliever. For the unbelieving world, the question that often comes out of the problem with pain is the question, does God really exist? And we've all heard this. But what about for the Christian? What is the problem that, that we as believers struggle with and suffering? What questions do we ask in the midst of suffering? As we've already alluded to, one of the problems that, that we run into uh, in suffering is that it causes us to question the realities about our salvation. We don't so much question His existence, but His goodness and His love towards us. We don't see how our salvation can possibly make sense in light of our pain. And this is what Paul, Paul speaks to in Romans 8. Uh, I want to show you this first just from a few broader observations about the text, but then we'll, we'll dive in more pointedly and see how that question specifically really is the heart of the text this morning. Um, as you all know, on, on, a, on really just a book level, uh, salvation itself is really the dominant theme of the book of Romans, right? And what we've, what we've been talking about thus far, so much of what Paul um, has done has, has really just been a very in-depth explanation of salvation, <laughs> He's explained the problem we have early on, how God uh, solves that problem in Christ. He raises different objections to different things he says, answers them, talks about different nuances. Um, and everything he's doing really is trying to explain how salvation works. And it's in that context that he begins to talk about our suffering now here in Romans 8. Notice the questions that Paul raises. Verse 33, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Notice how these questions are not really questions about the person who can bring an accusation or the person who can condemn us, although that's the way they're, they're formed. They're questions actually about the reality of our salvation. This idea of someone actually being able to bring an accusation against us, it would only be possible if there was a guilt that we're responsible, responsible for that had not been accounted for. Uh, and the idea of, of condemnation being a possibility for us is to say that one possible outcome that we're headed for is eternal punishment, not eternal glory. It would be to say that what Christ has done for us, as explained previously in Romans, is not actually effectual for us. 
And this is all kind of wrapped up in, in the one larger question in verse 35, which is this, who can separate us from the love of Christ? It's God's love that he demonstrates through Christ Jesus that is the, the underpinning by which our salvation is effective and is secure. You remember Romans 5, verse 8. God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16 has that same idea as well. If you want to know if God loves you, look at Christ. If we lose him, we lose, we lose it all. But what, what specifically would cause us to doubt that that reality is true of us? That Christ really loves us? Well, Paul gets, he gets specific. He lists specific things. Look again in verse 35. Can affliction separate you from the love of God? Can distress separate you from the love of God? Can persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, can those things separate you from the love of God? And this is where the text begins to get interesting. <laughs> this is where we begin to unlock what exactly the question is. What exact, exactly that, that tension is regarding our suffering in the Christian life that Paul's highlighting and speaking to. Because what's significant about these specific things that Paul lists as things that we feel like can separate us from the love of God is that there are specific things that the Lord talks about bringing as his judgment on his people in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant if they fail to faithfully keep the covenant the way they've been commanded to. Are you following me here? Uh, the Old Covenant was not like the New Covenant. It was very conditional. Uh, it required the faithfulness of the people to hold it up on their end, which is why it didn't work. And, and the Old Testament's full of God uh, dealing with a people who cannot stay faithful to him in that. Part of which includes these promises of, of blessing if they keep the covenant, but also cursings if they did not keep it. And in several places where God uh, speaks to them about their failure to keep his commands, he says, I'm going to bring my judgment upon you. And the specific way he's going to do that is by bringing specific things like affliction, <laughs> distress, persecution, famine, danger, sword. I'm not going to have your have you turn everywhere with me, but if you're taking notes, maybe just uh, write these references down. You can look them up later because they're, they're important to see. These are just a few examples of this. In Isaiah 8, 22, the Lord talks about bringing distress and affliction. In Jeremiah 5, verse 12, he's going to bring famine and the sword. In Jeremiah 24, verse 10, he's going to bring the sword and famine and then this language of disgrace or scorn or ridicule, all kind of getting at that idea of shame. Lamentations 2, verse 21, it's the sword. Zephaniah 1, verse 17, the Lord is going to bring distress on mankind at the day of the Lord. Not just talking about unfaithful Israel, though, but all, all of the people who will experience the Lord's judgment on that day. And so, you can see here in Romans 8, Paul is very intentionally invoking these ideas of things that in the Bible's own story, are not things that are indicative of the Lord's loving hand, uh, loving hand and care over you, but actually His judgment. <laughs> but now notice what's beginning to go on in the text here. Paul is not talking as a man who is unsaved or about people who are unsaved. Paul's talking about those who have been justified, freed from sin, freed from the law, on their way to glory, yet he's saying that the experience of the Christian life is not always one of perceived victory and triumph. It also consists of suffering. And the way he describes the suffering that we go through is the same language that the text uses to describe the Lord's judgment. So let's just make the statement here early on <laughs> that we've all felt if we've walked through suffering in our life and that Paul is affirming through his use of the Old Testament here which is that even as believers, the suffering that we walk through in this life feels as if it's the Lord's judgment upon us. That's why the questions that Paul raises at the beginning have to do with the realities of our salvation. Because when we suffer with Christ in this life, what it often feels like is that we're living under 
the weight of the Lord's judgment and his displeasure. When we just look at our present circumstances, that's what we see. We're not alone in this, by the way. When we read the, the, the passion narratives of Christ, we see this illustrated for us perfectly. Jesus, who did not sin, still felt pain. Even in the midst of walking through his pain, in perfect obedience and faith to the Father, his words, as he hung on the cross, are crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus did nothing wrong, and he wasn't wasn't hanging on the cross because of anything he did. But as he hung there, the overwhelming feeling and emotion that he had was, Why, God, have you rejected me? And this is exactly the heart and the cry that Romans 8 speaks to. Oftentimes, the overwhelming thought and feeling in the midst of our suffering is a crying out to God, Why have you forsaken me? The problem with our pain in the Christian life is that it, it, it creates a tension for us. Where the, the objective reality about my life, the things that I, that I would know and say to be true that God says are true, are inconsistent with the subjective reality of my experience and the things that I perceive to be true experientially. The pain that I'm experiencing in this life right now it does not seem to align with the objective realities that the Bible would tell me are true of me if I'm in Christ. We see this idea and this tension reinforced as we we just keep walking through the text. Immediately after that list of specifics in verse 35, Paul then quotes an Old Testament psalm in verse 36. Notice not just the quotation, but the way that it's quoted with the words, as it is written. Whatever he's about to quote, he feels, is directly supporting the point that he's trying to make. This quotation, verse 36, it's from Psalm 44, verse 22 here, which reads, Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Turn back with me to Psalm 44 for just a moment. Um, And let's kind of just look at Look at the context of what's going on around this verse specifically that Paul quotes so we can kind of see why exactly he's, he's using this specific verse. Psalm 44. Psalm 44 is a lament psalm. Uh, it's Israel crying out to God with a, with a complaint. And the complaint is essentially this. They're saying that that they've, they've been faithful to God, yet he still turned his back on them as if they haven't been. Uh, look in verses uh, 9 to 16 here first, where they say um, th- that the Lord, he's, he's rejected them, he's humiliated them, he's made them an object of mockery and ridicule, a laughingstock among the nations. Um, my disgrace is before me all the day long, he says. My shame has covered my face. Uh, a lot of the same language and, and ideas um, as those specific things that Paul lists in verse 35, some of the references we just talked about. But then in verse 17, all of this has happened to us, but we have not forgotten you or betrayed your covenant. Our hearts have not turned back. Our steps have not strayed from your path. They're so confident in this, actually, that in verse 20, they, they plead on their own behalf, but they do so on the grounds of God's own power. If we had forgotten the name of our God, wouldn't God have found this out since he knows the secrets of the heart? (laughs) In other words, we haven't turned away from you, God, and if we had, surely you would be able to find that out. Not only do we know that we haven't rebelled against you, God, so do you. And it's in this context that the words Paul quotes are written, because of you we are slain all day long, we are counted as sheep to the slaughter. The cry of Psalm 44, understand that that Paul quotes in Romans 8, it's not the cry of a guilty man who the Lord has has rightly turned his back on for his rebellion against him. It's the cry of a people who are positionally right with God, yet who are still experiencing what they perceive to be the crushing weight of his judgment upon them. The Lord has unjustly forsaken them. That's their cry. And the way they describe their condition is, 
as being slain all day long. Like sheep to be slaughtered, not because of anything they've done, but because of God. Are you beginning to see the tension that Paul is raising with our suffering in this life? Paul quotes this this verse right in the middle of the book of Romans, the, the deepest, most technical, thorough, and profound explanation of our salvation anywhere in the Bible, some people would argue. After arguing for salvation by faith alone, by grace in Christ, headed for an eternal glory in paradise with God, and right here, he stops to acknowledge the reality of suffering that we all experience in this life. And how in our perceived reality, it appears to be absolutely contrary to everything that he's just talked about. Friends, we don't, we don't interpret the Bible based on our, on our experience, but the Bible, when handled properly, 100% speaks to the human experience. Does it not? This is, this is not exactly how it feels at times. I just want to sit here for a moment and just acknowledge and say with full force that this is a real reality of the Christian life. Something bad happens to me or, or something bad happens to somebody I love. And oftentimes the first thought and feeling is, Lord, what, what did I do? Why are you unhappy with me, God? Why are you letting this happen to me? On one hand, Lord, you, you, you tell me that you love me, that me and you are, are good, that I didn't have to do anything to earn that. But I just have to trust in you. And here I am trusting you, God, and all it feels like I'm getting is your judgment upon me. You say that Christ took the penalty for my sin upon him, but it feels like I'm living through the punishment for my sin. You tell me that in the gospel, I don't get what I deserve, but sometimes in life, God, it feels like you're giving me exactly what you think I deserve. Some of you may remember uh, in, the, in the great classic work of art, uh, The Princess Bride, uh, there's this line in there that says, Life is pain, Highness. Anyone telling you otherwise is selling something. Friends, Christianity isn't selling you something. <laughs> it's not selling you anything. It's realistic. And this is what it's talking about. And if what you're, what you're getting or hearing from, from anyone around you or anyone out there on the internet or wherever it may be isn't willing to be honest about the reality of suffering in this life, they're selling you something that is not Christian. It's not Christianity. It's not. And one of the dangers for all of us would be that if we, if we internalize that into our hearts and our minds and we start to believe it, at some point our life and our circumstances are going to smack us square in the face <laughs> because they're not going to square with what you believe about God and salvation. If we don't understand how the gospel speaks to our suffering, all we're going to be left with is doubt and despair and, and, and anxiety around whether or not we are really loved by God because everything around us would tell us the complete opposite. This is not just a problem somewhere out there in the culture or on the internet that we, we start to believe and digest. It's actually first a problem inside of us. It starts in our hearts that are again and again and again inclined towards good works in this mentality that if I, if I do good and I please God with my works, that I'm going to receive good results. <laughs> and if I do bad, I will, I will receive bad results. And it works the other way, too. If I'm getting bad results right now in my life, if life is giving me hardship, the assumption that we run to is that I must be doing something wrong. I remember my dad telling me once uh, that after his mom was diagnosed with cancer, someone in the church actually approached them about the fact that there must be an unrepentant sin in her life. And maybe some of you have had statements made to you in a similar vein of this. Maybe some of you have, have made statements in a similar vein to this or had that thought. 
In this line of thinking, it's exactly what Luther was punching at when he said that true theologians, they comprehend the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering in the cross. A bad theologian, he's not able to see God in the midst of unexplained pain and suffering. He, he assumes that the presence of pain, it's either the devil or it's God's punishment for wrongdoing. He tries to see God revealed merely in the present circumstances of life and the things that we see happen right in front of us because he doesn't see him as he's chosen to manifestly reveal himself in the world hanging on a cross. Not absent in pain, present in it. Bringing about his purposes through it. The problem that we have with our suffering as believers, it's not so much that it causes us to question God's existence, but that it causes us to question whether or not he really loves us. We don't struggle to believe that he's there. We struggle to believe if he's there for us. It causes us to question the reality of our salvation because in the flesh we, we only see it as his abandonment of us or as the displeasure of us and judgment over us for something wrong we've done. But friends, <laughs> what we want and what we need this morning are not merely new circumstances or more power and, and resources to overcome our pain. What we need are new eyes. We need new eyes that can, that can make sense of our suffering because they're able to see God as he's truly revealed himself, hanging on a cross. <laughs> not hidden somewhere behind the pain in our lives, but present in it. And when we see God through the lens of the cross, what those new eyes would see about our suffering from our text this morning is three things. The first thing that we can say about how the gospel makes sense of our suffering in the Christian life is that it's part of our participation with Christ. Uh, this idea of, of uh, participation with Jesus, it's really been the overarching uh, theme and idea of chapters 5 through 8, which if you'll if you'll notice or remember, they actually uh, start and end with this idea of suffering. <laughs> in chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says, We rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And now we end on the subject of suffering once again here in chapter 8. And so this, this entire uh, section, again, chapters 5 through 8, in some regard, I'm not going to say it's the uh, the only purpose or even the main purpose, but it is a purpose, is meant to inform us of how we can rejoice in our sufferings, and it does so by walking us through all the different ways that we participate with Christ in our salvation. That's fundamentally what Paul's trying to help us understand in this, in this block of text, is what our union and participation with Jesus means for our life, what it looks like. In chapter 5, it's our our justification. In chapter 6, it's our death and resurrection. In chapter 7, it's our freedom from the law. And then chapter 8 begins with this declaration that there is there, uh, now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. These are all the, the, the little nuances of the great hope that we have in Christ. And the common theme in all these things that runs through those, those four chapters is that it's our union with and our, and our participation with Jesus that explains all of these realities. Our justification, our sanctification, uh, even the future glory that we're going to inherit. And the point to make here is that in the same way that union with Christ explains all the benefits of salvation, it also explains our suffering. You'll remember how Psalm uh, 44, we just talked about, talks about a people who who, uh, who have been faithful to God, yet they're being led uh, like sheep to the slaughterhouse. But you should also remember <laughs> that before Psalm 44, there was first a man described in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the coming Messiah, who was to be pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities, who when the Bible looks ahead and anticipates what the Messiah would do to redeem his people describes the way that he would go to the cross like this, like a lamb led to the slaughter. And so for all of us, 
understand this morning that while you may be going through it right now, Christ has already been there and done that. And not to make light of it because it's, it's, it's real and it's heavy and it's painful at times. We know that Jesus hung naked on a cross. There's nothing to minimize or make light of. But understand that when we, when we look at our present suffering through the lens of the cross with this idea in mind that I'm, that I'm walking in the footsteps of Christ, who I'm united to, what we see is not abandonment and despair. It's hope. It's hope. Understand that when we're, when we're tempted to, in the midst of our pain, question the goodness of God or question the love of God, that we're not dealing with someone who just stands idly by watching what happens to us. We're dealing with the one who has is, who is not only already walked through our pain and suffering before us, he's also defeated it for us. And he's secured our victory over it as well. The cross, it helps make sense of our suffering because it shows us that if our salvation is our union with Christ, then our suffering is not something that happens outside of our salvation. It's something that happens as a part of our salvation. It's participation in the death of Christ, ultimately so that we can be resurrected and glorified with Him as well. Seeing God rightly in this way and, and growing to know Him more and know Him intimately, it doesn't, it doesn't just happen to us as, as sort of innocent bystanders, as if He's just information to be internalized. Knowledge of God is relational. It's something that, that happens to us. It's God it's God doing something to us. It's why our salvation should be understood as, as union with Jesus. We're in a relationship with Him. We participate in Him. And understand here, the cross is part of that. The cross is not just something that we, that we read about, that we see, that just informs us of something. As if we can really learn it and learn how God works through it without being participants in it. The cross is something that happens to us. It attacks us and it, it afflicts us, ultimately bringing about the great hopes of salvation that we believe in. But God doesn't give us that great hope. He doesn't give us the resurrection of Jesus and the glory of Christ without first giving us the cross of Christ. Now Paul says in Philippians 3, my goal is, is to know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. And our goal should be the same, to know Christ in His sufferings so that we can also know Him in His resurrection and glory. This idea of, of resurrection and the glory to come uh, leads us directly into the second way that the gospel helps make sense of our suffering, which is that it tells us we're actually victorious in it. When we look at our suffering through the lens of the cross, we see that it's not our defeat, but that we are victorious in it. Paul writes in verse 37 that although we are being treated like sheep led to slaughter, the suffering that we're under cannot separate us from the love of Christ because we are more than victorious through Him who loved us. But what is that victory? What does it actually look like? Well, the victory that Paul speaks of here, it's not, it's not a circumstantial victory in this life, but the ultimate realization of our conformity to Christ that happens in our glorification. This idea, it relates back to the context of our passage where Paul says uh, in verse 28, that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. He qualifies who those people are right after. He says they're those who are called according to His purpose. That purpose then, and the good that all things are working together towards, it's explained in the following verses. Follow along. For those He foreknew, He also predestined, and here it is, to be conformed to the image of His Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And then, and then just follow the logic with the rest of the thought in verse 30. Uh, those he, he predestined, 
Predestined to what? Predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also, what? Glorified. And, and so just follow me here. The purpose for which all things work together is our conformity to the image of Christ, which culminates in our future glorification. And part of the, the all things that the Lord uses to do that work in us, to conform us to the image of Christ, includes our suffering. As Sibs put it, whatsoever is good for God's children, they shall have it. <laughs> for all is theirs to further them to heaven. Therefore, if poverty is good, they shall have it. If disgrace be good, they shall have it. If misery be good, they shall have it. And if crosses be good, they have them. For all is ours to serve for our greatest good. Friends, God uses suffering and pain in this life to make us more like him. This is the logic behind Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 where he writes, Therefore, do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we don't focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so friends, <laughs> believe this morning that in our suffering, we are more than victorious in it. Because God works all things for the good of those who love him, who he called according to his purpose, who he's, he's conforming to the image of his son, which will one day culminate in your glorification. Understand that we reign in this life here and now in this sense, that nothing, nothing can happen to us that will not contribute to our salvation. Not only can nothing take our salvation away from us, but nothing can happen to us that won't contribute to it. And so even when it may really, 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 really feel like we're being defeated at times, whatever it is, when it feels like we're just being put to death all day, every day, understand that we are more than victorious in it because every single second that we spend suffering in this life is producing in us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory in the life to come. <laughs> you may not be able to see it now, but it's not... It's not wasted. It's doing something in you. Because God is using that as a means of conforming you to the image of Christ. Philip Yancey, I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, uh, popular Christian author, he writes in his book, Where is God When It Hurts? That the Bible consistently changes the questions we bring to the problem of pain. It rarely or ambiguously answers the backward-looking question, why? And instead, it raises the very different forward-looking question, to what end? We're not put on earth merely to satisfy our desires, to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. We are here to be changed. To be made more like God in order to prepare us for a lifetime with Him. And that process may be served by the mysterious pattern of all creation. Pleasure sometimes emerges against the background of pain. Evil may be transformed into good. And suffering may produce something of value. So much of our disconnect with God and our suffering is that we have a different goal than He does. Our goals, they often revolve around our own our own comfort and our own glory in this life, we become, we become obsessed with trying to make sure that, uh, that nothing bad happens to us <laughs> or nothing bad happens to those that we care about. We make all of our decisions with that as the end goal. And then if we do get caught up in something, we, we become obsessed with getting out of that pain. 
without ever stopping to consider what the Lord might be doing by just trying to get you through that pain. We handle pain therapeutically at times, and we even, we even cloak it in, in Christianity. Life is bad right now, so let me, let me try to fix it by, by praying more. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start reading my Bible more. I may even start going to church more. These are all things that we sometimes start to do, not as a means of trusting the Lord through pain, but as a way of trying to get out of it. <laughs> I went to a, a small uh, Christian college. Uh, you'd be amazed at the number of young guys who uh, really began to get serious about their faith in the midst of a breakup. Just saying. These mindsets towards our pain, they're, they're fleshly and they're worldly, where, where the mindset is that if God wants good things for me, that means things that I define as good, my ease and my comfort and my convenience, means a life that I get to, to coast through with no pain or suffering, and we have no category for how the Lord might actually be bringing something good about in us through the worst circumstances imaginable. But the Bible says that God's ultimate goal for you, it's not your comfort right now. It's to be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. And one of, one of the ways that that happens is through our suffering. The message of the Bible, it's not, it's not that our pain is a bad thing that keeps us from the love of God. It's that our pain and suffering with Christ now, it's a good thing that the Lord uses to prepare us for the glory to come. Therefore, 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 when you're really going through it, do not give up. The power of the gospel, it's not, it's not one of desired results through power in might. It's one of victory through death. And nowhere is that made more evident than the cross. We've talked about how our suffering is first and foremost participation with Jesus. One thing that that means is that we're victorious in it. But the last thing we want to say this morning is that we're also positionally secure in it. The overarching question as we said earlier, the text raises about our suffering, is can it separate you from the love of God? Does it mean that God has turned his back on you? Does it mean that God is displeased with you for something? Does it mean that the gospel is not, is not true in your life? Not only does the text say that this is just part of being united to Jesus, not only does it say that our, our suffering, it's actually a fundamental part of the Christian life and how the Lord has chosen to conform us to his son, it also says that we are absolutely, positively secure in it, in Christ Jesus. It's really only by looking at our position in Christ that we can, that we can really find any security in these things, because it's only in Jesus that we really find any security in our salvation to begin with. I think oftentimes uh, we, we mistakenly believe that our our life circumstances, the things that we go through and experience, uh, they are controlled by, by uh, angels or rulers or hostile powers. <laughs> but the truth is that if our suffering is our participation with Jesus, then Pilate has no more control over you than he did Christ. The, the, the machine, the establishment, the deep state, whatever you think is out there, <laughs> it has nothing on you. Your life, life belongs to, to Christ. You can't be separated from the love of God any more than Jesus can. Uh, one, of the, one of the best things I think about this text that we, that we often miss is, is the tone of it. Um, as, as you just read through it, it sort of, uh, it sort of vibes as this very confident and, and triumphant declaration that, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that's how it starts and that's how it ends. But all the while, still legitimately raising the question, can anything separate us from God's love? You see that. The, the text, it both, it both declares that nothing can separate us from God's love, but at the same time, it's genuinely asking the question. And again, in that way, it speaks perfectly 
to the human experience. Even in our best moments of faith, we often are riddled with doubts. But, but at the end of the day, notice how the grounds of our confidence in suffering, once again, it has, it has nothing to do with anything that we do or, or even how well we suffer for Christ or anything like that. And instead, it has everything to do with the position of Jesus. Nothing can separate you from the love of God because the love of God is in Christ Jesus, verse 39 says. And where is Jesus now, does the text say? <laughs> He's interceding for us. Seated at the right hand of God. What exactly does, does, does this look like? I think we could, say, uh, we could say a lot of things here. But one place that I think this is illustrated well is actually, actually during the life of Jesus here on earth. Um, does anybody here remember the shortest verse in the Bible? Anybody? John, John 11.35. Only two words. Jesus wept. Some of you aren't going to believe me. But this is the very heart of Jesus in the midst of your suffering. Uh, Lazarus is dead. And Jesus, he looks out on the pain of life. He sees, he sees people going through the pain of death and loss. And he feels for them. He doesn't say, I'm glad they know how it feels. He doesn't say, good, they, they deserve that one. He doesn't say it serves them right. He weeps. And so, friends, when you find yourself in the place of Mary and Martha, mourning the circumstances of life, and you're wondering where God is or how he sees you in that moment, Understand that he's not looking down on you uninterested or waiting to see what you do next or for some reason happy that it's happening to you. He weeps with you because he understands. He's felt it too. And he's interceding for us now so that we can one day be with him forever. There's one theologian who said God weeps with us so that we may one day laugh with him. <laughs> it's precisely this fact that Jesus is, is right now seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us, that Paul can say that he's persuaded that not even death or life or angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, can anything in this life separate you from the love of God? <laughs> Absolutely not. Because God's love for you is found in Christ, just like it always has been. And not only did Christ die for you, but where is he now in the midst of our pain and suffering? Sitting right next to God. Interceding for us. And so when our circumstances, as they often do, cause us to question the love of God, if he's, if he's there for us or not, where do we look? We look at Jesus. We look at Jesus. We look at how he not only, not only suffered in our place, but he was also raised again. And we just believe that if God did that for us, that there's nothing that is going to separate us from him now. And we walk through it. We walk through it knowing with full confidence, like Romans 8 shows us, that no matter how bad it is or how bad it gets, we're safe with him because he's seated on his throne right now at the right hand of God, interceding for us so that one day we will be raised with him also. The cross, it helps make sense of our suffering because it gives us hope that our suffering is not the end of our story, that our salvation is secure with Christ. I'll close with this. Nate, you can come up if you, if you want. In the movie um, Shadowlands, based on the life of C.S. Lewis, uh, his wife experiences a brief remission from her, uh, from her fight with cancer. And there's a scene in that, in that movie where the two, uh, they're just kind of enjoying 
uh, a, a break from the battle. Um, Joy, that's his wife's name, she, she looks ahead to what is inevitably coming her way um, when, when the cancer flares up again. And she makes this statement, the pain that I'll feel then is part of the happiness I feel now. That's the deal. Uh, in other words, she's saying, I know, the, I know the pain's coming and I can be happy right now knowing that I don't have to go through that in the present moment. Joy, his wife, she would go on to, to, to lose her battle with cancer. And in one of the final scenes, Lewis is seen trying to comfort her son, David, and as he clung to the great hope in heaven, he made just a subtle change in Joy's words. The pain that I feel now is part of the happiness that I'll feel then. That's the deal. Friends, there's something more coming. Something more coming that that does not even begin to compare to these presentary, momentary, light afflictions that we all go through. And so when those things inevitably come, we don't, we don't try with all of our power and might to get out of it or get around it. We just let the Lord bring us through it, bringing about his purposes. Because we know that whatever it may be, it's not God's abandonment of us. It's something that he's using for our good. We suffer with him now who died on our behalf all while looking ahead to that day that day of glory, trusting that God is going to take away our pain, (laughs) is going to wipe away our every tear. And for right now, we just let God have our way with us, have his way with us, (laughs) changing us from one degree of glory to the next by any means that he sees fit. Amen? Let's pray and then we'll we'll close in song. Father, uh, help us, Lord. <laughs> help us to believe. Help us to, to trust you. Help us to see you clearly, Lord, as you've, as you've revealed yourself. But also see us to help, uh, help us to see you in the right place, not as somewhere distant from us, not with your back turned towards us, not uninterested in what we're going through, not looking down on us in, in displeasure or disgrace. Lord, you're in it with us. Help us to see our pain, every bit of it. No matter how bad it is, let us see it for what it is, incomparable to the eternal weight of glory that is waiting for us on the other side. And with that in mind, help us to, help us to not bristle against it, help us to lean into it trusting you in it. That you're bringing something about in us, not by just taking us out of it, Lord, but by bringing us through it. So that we too can cry out with confidence, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that nothing, 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 nothing in this life can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we pray all these things in your name.